You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest. His name is Herman Mendoza and he's written a book called Shifting Shadows, How a New York Drug Lord Found Freedom in the Last Place He Expected. Uh, And I got to say, I just finished this book and it's so powerful. His story is so powerful and I'm excited to have him on the show. Welcome, Herman Mendoza. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to be on your show. Thank you for being here. And so let's Start in the beginning. You you were born and raised basically in Queens, right? Queens, yes. New York. Queens, New York. And, and tell us about that. Tell us about your childhood and how you kind of wound up involved in kind of nefarious things in your childhood. <laughs> yeah, definitely. My parents uh, arrived from the Dominican Republic back in 1965 looking for the American dream. And they brought with them their two children and they decided to extend their family. And uh, I'm the youngest of five brothers, so they extend their family with three additional children, <laughs> all boys, by the way. So you can only imagine nice. the kind of headaches and turmoil in my mother's home. Uh, so it's all boys. We were raised in a, a, a community called Corona Queens. Um, New York City is so diverse with so many different ethnicities. Uh, it was uh, challenging for a lot of us uh, growing up in this neighborhood with other ethnic groups. Uh, and so I was sort of, uh, you know, the streets were, were calling me in a sense that I, I was sort of lured into it because my brothers were, were somewhat involved in gang activities as well. And so I thought it was a thing to do. It was a cool thing. And how, how old were you when this kind of started, when you were um, getting lured in? I was around 13 years of age. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was pretty young. And I was introduced to uh, uh, marijuana. Uh, at 13 years of age. And that eventually led for me to use other narcotics, uh, such as cocaine, and then eventually heroin. Uh, I got involved with some gang members in the community. And um, that led me down to a path of destruction, pretty much. And I ended up in prison, uh, juvenile detention center, due to a robbery that I committed. And I wanted to sustain uh, my drug uh, habit. Uh, so my mom, so how old after, were you? How old were you when you were put into juvie? I was, uh, 13, 13 years of age. Okay. And it was uh, so because it was like of a, a yeah. it was because of a robbery, right? It was a robbery. Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, they sent me to a juvenile detention center and upon my release, my mom concocted a, a scheme. Was she Christian? Was she Catholic? Like what was her beliefs? Uh, she was a Catholic. Uh, my father uh, was uh, a Protestant, but he wasn't following uh, the Bible as we know it. Um, and so my mom decided to send me to the Dominican Republic, where she was born, and my dad, where they were born, um, and uh, send me off to a private school. And so, so I was this was a, after after you were in juvenile detention. Uh, after I was in juvenile was in detention. detention. Yeah. Yes. So right after juvenile, they concocted a plan to send me over to the Dominican Republic. And uh, placed me in a private school, thinking that that would change my behavior. And so they contacted their parents. My mother contacted her parents, my grandparents, uh, 
And they said, please take, look after my boy. He's just crazy in New York City. <laughs> so I was in this private school. Uh, and I was like, what am I doing here? I'm a city boy. I'm in the Dominican Republic. I'm in a private school. I don't belong here. And so I rebelled against the teachers and uh, they, I got expelled. And what, and was one, the, what was the exact reason your, for your expulsion from that school? Okay, so the, it was really strict rules. And they told me, if you uh, leave the school without permission, you're going to be expelled from, from the school. And that's what I did. I, I, I you know, decided to uh, leave the school, not attend class, um, and hang out with my friends, uh, drink beer, because it was readily available for young people in the Dominican Republic. They don't ask for no ID identification. And so I was consuming alcohol. And I was, again, in that sort of environment of, of drinking and hanging out and party life until my grandparents pulled me to the side and said, young man, you're going to work with us out on the field. And they owned agricultural uh, farmland. And they went to the agricultural business. And so they passed me a machete. And they said, you're going to get to work. I'm like, a machete? What are you talking about? And so I had to, you know, work the grounds. And um, it was tough. And I, I, so I rebelled against my grandparents. Um, and I started to drink even more alcohol until they contacted my parents and said, we're going to send this young man back to New York City so that you can take care of him because we cannot support his behavior. Uh, he's just too much for us. And, and what and, was your mom? What was your mother? Was she like super disappointed and like yeah. frustrated with you? Like what was her kind of response to all this? You know, she was frustrated because she, you know, in her mind, uh, she didn't want me back in New York City because of the fact that I was involved with, uh, you know, consuming drugs, uh, you know, got arrested. I was involved in gangs and she didn't want, you know, for me to come back to New York City and then engage again in these kinds of behaviors. And so, um, you know, she was upset. She thought that the Dominican Republic would be a place to really straighten my act out, uh, become the man that she wanted, this young boy that she wanted for me to become. Uh, but uh, again, I, I rebelled against my grandparents. The only good thing I think that happened to me in the Dominican Republic, besides spending time with my grandparents, was that I met my, uh, my wife. And she was Alexandra. You know, just a friend, Alexandra. She was just a friend, obviously, there. And I met her through a, a friend of mine that I had met in uh, junior high school in New York City. And she was attending a school in uh, Dominican Republic. And that's why I ran into her. And then she eventually introduced me to her friend, Alexandra. Uh, so I was sent back to New York City. And when you went back to New York, you became like a perfect citizen, right? For just a <laughs> short period of time. <laughs> Uh, I, I started to attend high school. I ran into my girlfriend, then wife, you know, and um, we were, you know, engaging in, in a relationship um, outside of marriage. Uh, and uh, so we decided to get married and, and right out of high school. And I told my parents, I said, mom, dad, I'm going to get married. And they're like, they looked at me like, are you crazy? You know, you're a, a young man. You should go to college. I'm like, no, I'm in love. You know, this is the way Latinos do it. We get married early at an early age. <laughs> And so I, I moved her out and we started a family. Um, I had my, uh, my wife and I had our first child. Uh, back in, just to give a, a perspective of what was taking place in New York City during that time, in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, cocaine was so prevalent and in our society, and not just in New York City, but across America. And it was destroying so many lives. Um, 
And so it was a fast paced trend. I call it trend because a lot of people, a lot of youngsters in my community were getting involved in this kind of illegal business of cocaine. Um, and my brothers, uh, two of my brothers were involved with a cartel out of Colombia. And I used to see them, you know, drive fancy cars, $130,000 vehicles, uh, expensive clothing. Um, they had, you know, big homes and, and, um, and, and that kind of lifestyle. I, I wasn't gra- gravitating to that lifestyle, but I saw that, that, that it was sort of easy money for them because they would lavish, you know, they would, they, they would just come by me and, and lavish all this money in front of me. And I kind of, you know, presented to me, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm doing this. And I was a hardworking man, believe it or not. I was working with, uh, I was working in a company and eventually got laid off because uh, the company was downsizing and I was unemployed. And so I contacted my brother, uh, my uh, fourth oldest uh, brother. And I, mean, I said, is it Look, Emilio you contacted? Uh, yeah, I contacted Emilio, exactly. Yeah. It was Emilio I contacted. And I said, Look, Emilio, I, you know, I need uh, money. And, but I don't want to get involved selling narcotics. I just want to do something else. He said, okay, come by the apartment. So I went by and I entered into an apartment where they had, uh, you know, things in place and protocol to get into this complex and into the apartment. Uh, and I finally made my way there. And uh, right before my eyes, there was $1.2 million in cash. I was only 21 years of age. And I see all this money. I see two Mac-10 uh, machine guns. Uh, and, and two counting machines. Uh, and the, the television was set blasted at, at you know, the highest volume to muffle the sound of the counting machines. And I was instructed. He said, look, I want you to count $1.2 million. I want you to count the money and organize it. And when I counted it, it was $1.2 million in, in cash. And so we uh, met the cartel. Uh, they parked uh, right before this uh, complex we were in. It was a very affluent neighborhood where we had our operations. So people thought that we were business people uh, where you have, you know, doctors and lawyers and business people that, that live in a complex, uh, this particular building condominium that we were conducting our, our illegal uh, enterprise, if you will. And so as we went down and gave the money into the uh, cartel, I eventually started to get involved now, not just counting money, but uh, distributing cocaine and, uh, having a team of uh, workers that were working under me uh, to sell the narcotics in different states across America and all throughout the Eastern Seaboard. And uh, we were transporting hundreds and hundreds of kilograms of cocaine. So I thought I was on top of the world. I had all this money, millions of dollars passing through my hand, the party life. Um, you know, everything was like, you know, girls and hanging out and expensive cars and um, I'm here in, in a VIP with celebrities and thinking, yeah, you know, I, no one can touch me. No one can stop me until one day my world came crashing down and I got arrested with uh, 32 kilograms of cocaine, 25 kilograms of cocaine that was uh, in my trunk of my vehicle. Um, and the other six or seven kilos of cocaine was in a, a stash house that we, uh, you know, had our drugs uh, uh, housed. Um, then I was sent to, uh, a notorious jail here in New York City uh, named Rikers Island. Rikers Island, yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's not a uh, nice place to be. But let me not. ask you this before back up for one sec. So while you were kind of doing, you know, selling drugs and doing all this and living that life uh, before you got arrested, were, was there 
any fear? I mean, I know, and your wife, Alexandra, like I, I know she was terrified of this whole thing and she was totally against it, but was there any fear in your mind of like, well, what if, what, what if I get caught? Cause you had kids at this point, right? Yeah. Yes, I did. And, and you know, when you're in sin and you're wrapped up in this world of uh, illegal activity, uh, you're not thinking about, you know, the, what ifs. you're not thinking about, we're going to get killed or we're going to get kidnapped or uh, the police is going to arrest us. I mean, it's in the back of our minds, you know, those that are involved in this activity. And I was one of the leaders of this cartel and I thought that I had things in place, but I, I would always, uh, you know, will be concerned. I was always concerned about my wife and children, but I had them, in my mind, I thought I had them secured in a secure location. And um, I would never take, you know, any drugs to my property. I would never take any, you know, guns. So they were uh, oblivious to the world that I was engaged in. And it was, re- it was really uh, terrible. Um, you know, you see a lot of things and, but I, again, I, I thought I was on top of the world because I'm all my business dealings were in restaurants and clubs. Um, I had people do all the dirty work for me, you know, to deliver the drugs in different places across America. So I thought in my mind, this is just another business. It's an illegal business, but it's just another business. Yeah. And so what, what happens when you show up at Rockers Island? So I show up at Rikers Island. They eventually send me to uh, another jail uh, called Queens House. And the very next day, uh, this is when I first got arrested. They sent me to the precinct before sending me to Rikers Island. I uh, pick up a newspaper and what was blasted across the newspaper, it read $3.8 million of cocaine seized. And uh, two brothers have been arrested and facing life in prison. And now this was reported by the prosecutor, the, the, the prosecutor back in those days uh, was uh, Richard Brown. And uh, Mayor Giuliani was governing the city of New York. And so he was cracking down on drug dealers. Um, and I was a big player in the drug scene. And so obviously we were confronting life in prison. I didn't get uh, any bail. Um, I was concerned uh, obviously my family, but I was more concerned about myself. It was the I. I didn't really care about any other things that was happening. I just wanted to get out of jail. And so we had, attor- we had attorneys in place. These attorneys used to uh, you know, maneuver all our operations in terms of anything that, that was done. That we were, If we would get arrested, we would have our legal team ready. Um, and so they negotiated with the prosecutor and they got me a, uh, a sentence of three to nine years of incarceration. Uh, which was a great deal in comparison to life in prison. Yeah. Uh, for that, you know, for the, uh, having uh, all that narcotics. Now, the police officers did not seize any uh, guns, only uh, drugs, uh, no money as well, just drugs. And so um, I then uh, I copped the plea and we negotiated with the prosecutors. And my brother got four to 12 years of incarceration and I got three to nine. And I was sent to uh, Ulster County. Uh, and then eventually there was an opportunity that opened up, which is a, sort of like a drug program slash scare straight kind of, um, you know, um, a setup for inmates that want to take uh, this particular program and get their sentence reduced. And I signed up. I was like, this is an easy way out of jail. So once I arrived to this military camp, again, you had these military officers on my face. And I didn't know what I was expecting. And, you know, get in parade rats, give me a hundred pushups. Oh, so wait, just back up. So the, one of the options was 
you could go to this military yes. camp called, what was it called? Uh, shock. Shock. Yeah. The shock to your shock. system. So you could go exactly. to this military camp to re- get a reduced sentence and you chose to yes. do that. And how long was the military camp for? Uh, it was only for six months. Six but months. I had, yeah, I already had done like a good year and a half in, in prison. Uh, so I thought it was a good deal. If I do six, an additional six months, uh, I'll be out, you know, uh, less than what I was confronting. Uh, the minimum sentence of three years of incarceration and max nine years. Um, and so when I arrived at this military camp, the very first thing that I decided to do because of sort of my upbringing of, you know, the, the, I, the Catholic church. So I thought that if I would negotiate with God and this upbringing that I had of a little bit of uh, Catholicism, if you will, I, I went to uh, this uh, chapel and I, I wanted to negotiate with God. And so I, I prayed and I said, if you allow me to be released from this program and I pass the six months, the regimen that they had instituted uh, to me uh, as, as an inmate, that I would not drink alcohol for six months. Now, it was ignorance and stupidity on my part. <laughs> Instead of saying, Lord, forgive me of my sins, you know, change my ways. Uh, I'm convicted for the things that I've done. You know, again, I had no knowledge of Christianity or the Bible, I was just, as a child, I was just going to, you know, Sunday uh, services or, or mass back, you know, it was a Catholic church. Um, so I didn't know any better about being born again or, or becoming a Christian. And I had no knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, thus, it took me into a, a life of destruction. Uh, so once I was released from prison, I remember my wife looked, you know, she looked at me with a stern face and she said, I hope you don't go back into that lifestyle. And so I lasted about six months. I, I remember that I got a job. I was working, making money. And um, the six month had expired. And at this my, point, how many of, kids did you have? I, at this point, I had three children. Three, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to uh, end my sobriety. And instead of celebrating that I had been, in, been sober, I was celebrating that I was ending my sobriety. And so I, it's just ludicrous, right? And I went to this uh, restaurant to have a drink and celebrate that I could have a drink once again. And so I started to uh, consume alcohol. And long behold, the enemy always sets us up. There was a, uh, an old uh, acquaintance that I had done business with before. He was then, back then, controlling over a ton of cocaine. And his um, uncle was the head of the cartel. Um, and so he, he approaches me in, in salutations in Spanish. And he said, look, uh, if you want to get back into the game, he called the game, you let me know. I was fighting with my conscience. My heart was like screaming, no, don't do it. But I was thinking about the fast paced lifestyle and money and possessions and women and, and all the things that I've once possessed because I, I had lost it all. I gave in, you know, and, and it reminds me of uh, Proverbs 26, 11, that a dog returns to his vomit. So, yeah. so do fools repeat their folly. And that's what happened to me. I, I repeated the same sin, went back into the business of selling cocaine. And now I'm um, connected with the head of the cartel and I'm receiving hundreds and hundreds of kilos of cocaine thinking again, I'm on top of the world. I'm hanging out in different celebrity mansions and New Jersey and uh, drinking and partying, um, you know, and having a bogus construction company 
so that I can keep my parole officer, you know, at bay. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so that he won't know what I'm doing in the, t- the kind of transactions I'm doing illegally in, in you know, selling drugs. Um, and so I started to work with my brother and we started to engage in narcotics, my, my other brother, because uh, there was three of us involved in, in the sales of narcotics. Um, and he knew he had a contact with this gentleman that he used to do business with. And he was a driver of his, and he used to uh, mobilize or move the, the narcotics from state to state in a, a, a big tractor trailer. Um, and just for your viewers, just to understand, they had different um, a mechanism. Uh, they call them traps. So it would open up certain parts of the uh, truck, uh, and uh, they would house the narcotics uh, and to conceal it from the cops, and they would mobilize it that way from state to state. And uh, he was working for the DEA. We had no idea, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And uh, they were, had us under surveillance. And we had given him about 11 kilos of cocaine. Um, and we got arrested. And now I'm facing a federal indictment. I was facing a federal indictment. I was like, what am I going to do now? I get arrested. Um, I contact my wife. My wife again, distraught, saying, what have you gotten yourself into? Again, another mess. And so we put up two prop- two homes. Um, and got out on a half a million dollar bail. My brother was denied bail due to a pending case that he had in New York State. And that's why he was extradited from Miami to New York. And we had bailed him out uh, prior, for him, you know, prior to him getting arrested with me. Yeah. So he had a pending case. Um, and then and you, you get out on bail and then you go on the lam, right? Is that what happened? It, it, exactly. That's what happened. So I go on, I go on the lam. And uh, uh, I'm drinking, I'm partying, I don't know what to do. And I tell my driver, take me to my, my home. He drives me to my home the very next day. The cops call my uh, house. My wife picks up the phone and they say, that your house is surrounded. Tell your husband to surrender himself. The very first reaction was jump out the window. I try to jump out the window. The cops were there, state police, marshals, DEA agents. And I looked at my wife and I told her, my life is over. Open the door. They arrested me, hauled me into the adjacent car. And as they were taking me to a federal detention center, I sort of turned around and I, they were celebrating, rightly so. But at the same token, they were taking a husband and a son and a, and a, and a father out of, out of uh, society and out of their home. Uh, you know, and I was, I was just, I was so depressed. I told the marshals, open the back door as the car was speeding away. And I said, I want to end my life right here. And he said, you never know what could happen. I don't know. He gave me a glimpse of hope, but it wasn't what he said. It was that my brother that got arrested with me in the federal indictment uh, had surrendered his life to Jesus during those six months that I was out on the lamb. And he was praying for my salvation. And he said, Lord, send my brother to the same pod, to the same cell block where I'm housed so I can share this great gospel with him. I had no idea that he had surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ. So once I arrived after they extradited me from Pennsylvania to New York, uh, Brooklyn, and this is where the, uh, the notorious drug lord Chapel was at, I arrived at the same facility, my brother's at the same pod, dormitory, and I see my brother and he extends his hands up in the air and he says, praise the Lord, hallelujah. <laughs> and I look at him, I'm like, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Have you gone mad? Are you crazy, man? We're in jail. I wasn't understanding his new uh, expression, his words, his countenance was different. It was just amazing. 
And so Mike, yeah, you even said in the book, like his, his whole face was just a different, different demeanor and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His demeanor was totally different. He wasn't cursing, uh, as he was commonly, you know, using all these (laughs) explicit, you know, uh, uh, words and, and he was just loving on me and loving on people in the, in the, in the, uh, dormitory and the cell block. I couldn't believe it. I was like, what is going on? And I was just concerned about my case. I wanted out. So I, I hired the, uh, one attorney. He says, man, you're facing a lot of time. I fired him. I hired a second attorney. He said, I'll, he goes, I can get you about 10 years. I said, if you give me 10 years, I am happy. He comes back. He says, look, the prosecutor wants to give you 18 years. So I fired him. At that point, I was on a, just a breaking point. I was depressed. I wanted to commit suicide. I was just, I was just out. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted a way out and the way out was to commit suicide. And one day my brother and my wife had left me. So my brother approached me and said, look, I want to invite you to chapel service. It's being run by inmates in the back of the uh, unit. I said, okay. So I walk, I walk towards the day room thinking this is my last hope. Perhaps God can change this life. And I said, all I want is peace. I'll, I'm going crazy in here. And as I walked to the chapel, I remember I sat in the back, skeptical of what was going on in this religious service. I've never seen an, a, a Protestant evangelical service being conducted. And I'm in the back, and I'm kind of observing everyone. And the preacher starts preaching. There was about 60 inmates there. And he said, there is someone that has been chasing after things, has had all these things that the world can offer this individual. And all those things, and obviously uh, illegal things, all these um, worldly things have taken over his life and has brought him to a place of dead ends. And I was like, that, that's me. And he said, and God wants to give you peace and that peace that surpasses all understanding. And at that point, I knew it was for me. And, you know, towards the end of the service, he makes an altar call. And I just walk over to the front of this church, make up, you know, altar and, and table setting, you know. And I, I'm, I'm in front of this minister, in front of God. And I, and I looked up and I said, God, forgive me. Forgive me. You know, I, I am a sinner. And I, I would say uh, that the change that I had that day, uh, the transformation that, that God began to work in me that day in 1998 was an amazing experience. I felt that the Holy Spirit just enveloped me. I felt the presence of God. And I, I saw Beckett. Uh, just flashes of images of people that I've harmed selling drugs, but I've never met them before because I was in a different level. And so I've never, I wasn't seeing people, you know, in a street corner, uh, you know, perhaps selling their body just to consume the very drugs that I was spewing out into society. I had no concept of that. I mean, I was in a different bubble, if you will. I was in a different world and I was seeing the very things that I was doing that was destroying the very fabric of what God created humans. And he created these people in his likeness and his, in his image. And so I, I just, I felt this, this burden sort of, you know, just lift out of my shoulder and I wanted to make amends with everyone. I, I contacted my mom that day. I said, mom, you know, in Spanish, mom, I'm, I'm born again. I'm born again. I'm a, I'm a new creature in Christ. And she was like, what? You know? And she was just happy. Did she understand me. what that meant? She didn't understand, but when I said I'm a Christian, since my father had uh, my father had given his life to the Lord many, many, many years ago, 
And my mom had gone to my father's uh, Pentecostal church uh, to, to attend his church that he was uh, attending. So she had an idea of uh, a, a, a Protestant service, a Christian service, an evangelical service. So when I said born again, she sort of like, she understood. But when I said, you know, Christian, and then it affirmed my, my transformation. And she was just very happy, uh, f- you know, for, for this experience that I was, that I was having. And uh, I was trying to reach my wife and I could not reach her. And I was calling, I could not reach her. And I heard that she wanted to, uh, to separate from me. She wanted to leave me indefinitely. So uh, my brother and I, we started to immense ourselves in the scriptures. And I started, I applied for a university, uh, college university uh, in theology. And I was studying law and I was studying uh, the word of God. And my brother and I became the ministers of the Dayroom Chapel. And we were ministering to hundreds of inmates that would come through our pod. And one of those inmates was Christopher Yuan. I know. That's I know right. <laughs> Christopher, by the way, if you guys don't remember, Christopher Yuan was on my show. I interviewed him and he wrote the book Out of a Far Country. And he happened to be in the same prison as Herman. And you guys were in the same Bible study or in the same. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. And I, I didn't know his testimony. He didn't he didn't share all of his testimony with us only in part, uh, but it was a remarkable experience, uh, you know, for him to, for us to cross paths in the sense that we would cross paths again out in the real world. And he would write, you know, a few books and I would write a book. So it's, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, so my brother and I, we started to preach the word. And uh, as the inmates were approached the uh, cell block, we were, we were trained deacons, <laughs> inmates to hand over a Bible to these new arrivals and say, we, uh, the Mendoza brothers have, church services in the back, a church service in the back. If you want to go attend, it's called five North church service. Uh, and, and they would give them a, sl- a pair of slippers and food. And the Lord just started to use us mightily in that uh, prison cell that today, that, su- that uh, particular unit and um, chapel, uh, they continue to carry services each and every day. Wow. Uh, so it's remarkable what God is doing in that prison. Amen. And is your, where is your brother, where is he out? Yeah, he's out. So yeah. then eventually uh, uh, I, I went to, uh, I was fasting and praying for three days for the salvation of my wife. And um, she came to see me and she said, I got bad news to share with you. And I'm like, oh no. I said, give me a few minutes. I want to share this good news that I have for you. This experience that I've been, you know, uh, practicing and engaging in. And I shared my heart with her and I told her I am a sinner. You know, God saved me. Uh, you know, by grace and, and uh, he can save you and forgive me for the things that I've done. And, and I started quoting James, you know, that to confess our sins to one another, that God will bring healing into and restoration to our marriage. And she started to cry. And she said, look, I've been unfaithful as well to you, but I want the Jesus that you have because you're more freer in, in prison than myself, that I am out in society. And she said, I want Jesus. And so I prayed for her and I laid hands on her. And we hugged each other. We forgave one another. And, I, and the very next, uh, that same week, she went to a, a Protestant church, um, Pentecostal church, and she got uh, uh, baptized in, <clears throat> excuse me, in water. And, uh, and she surrendered her life to Christ uh, in that uh, visiting area. And wow. I eventually was released from prison. Um, and I started a not-for-profit organization working on the behalf of uh, uh, children and youth. Uh, then I got recognized by elected officials. Then I started to work with um, the police department. 
uh, working with them and reaching young people. Then I get connected uh, with uh, the UN, uh, working with ambassadors, sending aid internationally. And it reminds me of the story of Joseph of the Old Testament. Yeah. That what the enemy meant for evil, God turned it around for good. Uh, you know, back then I'm, I was selling drugs and sending containers uh, across the United States. And then now God is using me to send containers of goods and uh, a pharmaceutical uh, uh, medicine and um, uh, clothing to uh, countries hit by hurricanes. Uh, and all this, only God does it. And then, I get, then I get introduced to a judge, a Supreme Court judge. And she says, your story is just remarkable. And I start working with her. And then I become her mentor because she was dealing with some, you know, some issues. Uh, then she connects me to an attorney. Uh, and this attorney w- once was the legal counsel for President Reagan. And then uh, we, we start working together and uh, we become friends. And um, then I become a chaplain. And then I, uh, they invite me to go minister to the players at the New York Mets uh, over at City Field. Then I meet some NBA players uh, to minister to them. But this is the craziest story uh, sort of to unravel this. Then God sends me to a Korean American church. I am Hispanic American. I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? What am I doing here at a Korean uh, American church? And it is to And this work is in the, Queens, right? This in Queens. Church? Yeah. Promise Ministries International. So, they, uh, so I landed a job there because uh, uh, some of the businesses that I've had before, because I was doing uh, part-time ministry and I had businesses. I had a, a community newspaper and then I got into a digital advertisement company. But God wanted me to work in full-time ministry. And I got connected uh, with a pastor at this particular church and he connected me to the senior pastor. And he met me and he said, look, you're a remarkable individual and I want you to work with me on behalf of this ministry dubbed 4 to 14 window, which is basically reaching children from the ages of 4 to 14. Uh, and it was just so personal to me because I was in reach at that age. I was in reach from 4 to 14. And it was so significant. And I started to work with uh, the senior pastor and we've traveled to over 50 countries training leaders on the importance of reaching children. And so we wow. started a, a ministry in our, in our church uh, called Powerhouse Kids, where we uh, train children from the ages of four to 14 to become the next leaders. And so we can save this generation and, and we'll tap into their gifts and talents. We teach them how to play the piano, how to play uh, the guitar, um, you know, the violin, math and other subjects. And then when they reach 15 years of, of age, they become the teachers and the leaders of this ministry. And this is what God has done in my life. And it's, wow. And you're, are you still involved in, the, in this ministry? I'm still involved. Yes. I, I, I've been at this church now for 12 years. 12 well, years. Just tell us also the, cause you, uh, you kind of skipped over this because this is a, a really interesting part of the book. It, that last time you were in prison, tell us how, how long you were there and how you ended up getting out. Sure. So again, I was facing uh, 18 years. I wanted 10 years of incarceration, uh, but it was difficult. And uh, after spending uh, close to about three years of incarceration, um, you know, just ministering, and I didn't care how much time I would get. All I wanted to do was preach the gospel and minister to inmates. And, and, I, and I remember one day my lawyer comes up to me and says, look, um, uh, the prosecutor uh, wants to negotiate your case and, and perhaps you can go home 
maybe nine years of incarceration instead of 10 or perhaps even seven. And I said, yes, you know, this is great news. And uh, the day came for sentencing. This was right after 9-11. I got sentenced a few months right after 9-11. And I was sent to the uh, courtroom uh, for sentencing. But right before I was uh, before the judge, I looked at my probation report and my attorney says, Mr. Mendoza, it looks like they want to give you from anywhere from nine to 14 years of incarceration, according to the probation report, due to your prior convictions. And I said, well, you know, it's only the Lord, well, whatever the Lord wants, I listened to his report. And he quite, he wasn't understanding what I was talking about. <laughs> he, he thought I was just, you know, uh, holding on to Christianity because of my case. Yeah. You know, he wasn't really seeing the genuine transformation of what God has done in my life, which, which, is, a, which is another story because, uh, you know, it, it's another story behind, behind him. But I, uh, when I went before the judge, uh, the prosecutor presented, you know, his uh, closing argument. He said, Your Honor, this individual has done remarkable things in prison. He has exceeded in, in every area, in education and uh, helping inmates out. And um, I hope that upon his release, whatever time you impose on him, that he would continue to do the same things that he was doing in prison out in society and help other people. I was blown away. Well, the prosecutor was your, basically your, <laughs> your defendant, defending attorney. Exactly. I looked at my attorney. I said, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, what is going on here? And so he gave his last uh, remarks. Um, and then it was my turn. I said, Your Honor, uh, the, the defendant you, you see before you um, has totally changed. I, I'm a new man in Christ. If you allow me this opportunity to be once released out of society, I, I, I want to work with young people. I want to help my you know, fellow man and, and uh, for like that, they don't get caught up in this lifestyle that I once was uh, participating in. And he looked at me, he said, that's all you have to say. I'm like, yes, your honor. And he sentenced me less than five years. Wow. So I could not believe I was like, wow. And so I was sent to Lewisburg penitentiary eventually. And from Lewisburg penitentiary to um, Allenwood low, where I ran into uh, a, a, a former politician by the name of trafficking uh, from Ohio congressman. And, uh, you know, he came to my chapel service because the chaplain there was using me to minister to the inmates. And he's like, uh, Minister Mendoza, I'm this close to giving my life to the Lord, but I want to fight the government a little bit longer. <laughs> he, was, he was something. He was a, a funny character. And, um, and so I met other people there. And, and I, I'm thinking I'm going to get released now because I, I was just there for a few months. Uh, and then I get picked up by my parole officer from the New York State. Since I had violated the first uh, condition, which was I was supposed to be out on parole uh, for uh, six years. And I caught the federal case with the DEA. And I'm like, okay, Lord, you want me to go back to the state prison? Uh, I'm leaving the feds now. And uh, there's a purpose for this. So they sent me to Rikers Island. And I'm in Rikers Island. So you're back at Rikers again. Back at Rikers again. Wow. I, I remember that as I entered Rikers Island, I was in this um, cell and I saw the conditions of these inmates. They were, you know, strung up, you know, uh, they looked at, you know, they looked, uh, you know, drugged up and, and in a very, in a deplorable state. And I saw them and I was like, God, I caused this for the drugs that I was selling. And I was just so moved with compassion, with love. And I wanted to just, 
minister the gospel to these inmates. So I opened my Bible. They allow you to carry a Bible in prison as you're being transported. And I opened it up and I started to pray and, and, and preach the gospel. And I led a number of those inmates to the Lord. It was quite an experience. And I just felt so at peace saying, wow, thank you, Lord. At least you, get, you have given me the opportunity to share hope to these folks that seem like they, they, they're hopeless. They have no hope. Um, wow. And then eventually I was released from Rikers Island. And that's where, where, where the story picks up in terms of what I, 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 what I was doing. You know, and so how long, how, how long were you in Rikers again? I was, I was in Rikers about four to five months. Okay. Four to five months, yeah. Wow. And then, so obviously you, after all of this, you reconciled with Alexandra, your wife and your kids. Yes, I did. We, we and, uh, reconciled. Uh, uh-huh. And is she, and so uh, was she completely blown away by just everything that, I mean, she must be just in a state of shock still <laughs> about everything she, she, she's been through. You both have been through. She is blown away because she knows that of the experiences that not, I'm not talking about prison, but the things that we, uh, she had to endure or our family had to endure because of drug trafficking. Um, you know, I had a brother that, that was uh, kidnapped and stabbed and thank God they let him go due to, you know, narcotics. And so our family, we've been through some stuff, but, um, Thank God that all of our, all of my brothers are serving the Lord. They're all Christians. Um, you know, my eldest is a doctor. The, the second, uh, a, a second eldest is, uh, um, in construction business. My third eldest brother, he's, uh, he's going to become a doctor, physician assistant. And my fourth, uh, eldest brother, he's owns laundromats. He's doing very well serving the Lord. And myself, I'm the pastor of the house. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's amazing, you know. That's what God awesome. does. And what about your father? Is he still alive? So, yeah, my father passed away about a year and a half ago. And my mom passed away uh, close to three years ago. But she got to see all my brothers serving the Lord. She got to see uh, the, 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 the things that God was doing in our lives. Uh, she was so happy. She received Christ in her heart as Lord and Savior. Um, and it was a remarkable experience. And I talk about it in my book. Um, how happy she was, even in her dying bed, uh, how she was so thankful to God that all her sons, uh, you know, all of them were serving the Lord and that were Christians and that were doing very well and contributing to, to our world in, in society. And so um, it was a, quite a, a moment that I had with my mom that day. It was just, it was remarkable. Wow. And what do you, tears what, my eyes. I know that's amazing. And what do you, what about, um, you have three kids. I think you have two daughters and a son, right? Yes. I have and, uh, two daughters and a son. Yes. And um, so uh, they must be adults by now. They're adults. Yeah. My, my oldest uh, daughter is 30 years old. Wow. And, and, and my, what are they, so what are the, what are your kids, what do they think about all this stuff, like what you went through and everything? What, what are their, they are faithful servants of God. They, they, they wow. love the Lord. They serve in the ministry. Um, they are blown away. Even when they were going to college, they were saying, wow, my dad has done remarkable things in his life. Um, they are people that, that love to share hope uh, uh, with others because they saw what their dad has been through, even though they were younger. Uh, they were, you know, 
three, four years of age, five years of age. But when I came out, my uh, my oldest daughter was uh, about uh, ten years old, nine, ten years old, and uh, so she she remembers uh, quite a bit. Um, and so it was very difficult for my kids the, the transition to seeing dad at home, you know, uh, uh, the priesthood of the of the household, uh, and seeing all these remarkable things that are taking place in my life and. And so I, that's why I decided to write this book. I wanted to really impact our world and let people know that there's hope, that even though their child may, may be facing addictions or uh, uh, people may be going through marital problems, that if they put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that their lives will be forever changed. And that's what happened to the Mendoza family. Wow. Well, that's a good way to end it. And so guys... <laughs> I highly recommend Shifting Shadows by Herman Mendoza. Um, it's a really, we did, we barely scratched the surface of the stories, but it's, it's a gripping, uh, I couldn't put it down. Like I, it's a gripping story and I recommend that book. And um, thank you, Herman, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And praise okay. God you're in Christ now. Amen. I mean, that's amazing. And your family. Exactly. And I've been serving the Lord since 1998. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. God bless. All right, guys, we will see you next week on the show. And thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project, a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app.